Welcome to Between the Bells, a conversation with your favorite history teachers, Mr. Drew Baker and Mr. Skylar Van Valkenburg, where they apply their vast knowledge of history and completely random information to entertain themselves and you. Between the Bells is brought to you by Feeling the Burn. Gonna make America great again. At the same time. <laughs> uh, welcome everyone to our podcast, Between Bells. I'm Skylar Van Valkenburg. And I'm Drew Baker. And here with us as always, running our sound media production, is the chairman. Matt McKeg. Hey everybody. Uh, here at Be- Between Bells, we discuss topics in history, the social sciences, current events, and pop culture. You can subscribe to us through iTunes or download other episodes through our blog. And with that... Chairman, cue up the motivational soundtrack for this week's segment. Intuitive improvisation. All right, let's get into our feature segment. Each episode, we try to highlight one subject or a series of subjects that we think might interest our listeners, students, and at the very least, ourselves. This week, we're going to discuss Super Tuesday because it is here. It's Super Tuesday. There are no students in the building because there are Voters. There's voters. They're just walking around, getting their stickers, casting their votes. And we don't want our students influencing those very determined voters. You know, we don't want the, you know, the... No, no. Uh, yeah, you know what, you know what they should make people do? Here's an idea for voters, and of course we are all biased to pushing educational issues at the front. I think that voters should have to walk through the school during school days, <laughs> during elections, and see, you know, maybe just local elections. Yeah, have, have school in session. I'm just going to throw it out there and suggest that the safety committee would ax that in five oh, seconds. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. School safety would have some trouble. But think about, like... The Department from Homeland Security would nix that. But think about how, <laughs> think about how much um, you know, that would expose. They would, they would see teachers doing our jobs. I mean, they would see us teaching and immediately... I mean, be wild. It, we, they would be wild. They'd be stunned. They would be voting for whoever would be running on a platform or quadruple... They might write challenges. our names in, so that might be bad. Yeah, that would be bad. Okay, so I guess that's that's why. It's because if you saw teachers <laughs> in the classroom, you'd just be inspired to write them in as writing candidates. And, and that's not fair. No, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair, no. Uh, so today we're just going to talk about primaries, their history, how they work, uh, some famous primaries, what do we think of this primary in particular with the craziness going on in 2016. Uh, and so first, I'll kind of take us through the basic history. I think a lot of people don't understand how new primaries are. You know, we kind of think, okay, it's, you know, February, March, April, it's time to start voting in these Republican and Democratic primaries to see where our presidential candidates are going to be. And they don't realize that it's really a relatively new phenomenon. You know, 1972, Mm -hmm. 1976 is where primaries really became the dominant mode of choosing candidates. You know, before this, they were chosen in the conventions, the fat cats, you know, the cigars in the convention room, party leaders. And so the average person didn't really get a say in who picked um, your candidates. Right. And so these conventions would occur in different cities um, across America, all of the... Now, how did you get to be a member of the convention? Yeah. So to be a member of the convention, you'd have to be a delegate, right? Which is why we're voting for delegates, Mm -hmm. because you're still technically voting for the people who vote at the convention. And to be a delegate, you basically had to be a, a, a party insider. You had to have access to the party. And then the local party would appoint you or elect you to be the delegate for your region, and you would then go be a delegate in the national convention. 
And so it was all based on access to the party. And this gave the party a tremendous amount of power because if you wanted to be elected president, you had to be good in good with the party insiders. So you, instead of appeasing the populace, you had to appease those who were elected by the populace. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, you know, there's a series of changes that happen in election law with the parties and the way parties pick the system. And so after 1976, you get the primaries. Now what the primary does is it allows the people to elect the delegates who then vote in the convention. And so you're not actually voting for the candidate, you're voting for that candidate's delegates. Uh, and so technically, what can happen is if no one has enough votes in the first voting round at the convention, those delegates are free agents. And so you could go back to what they, you know, uh, you could go back to a place where the convention could pick the candidate. Sure. But the way that it ensures the people's votes are counted is that first vote at the convention, they have to vote the way the people voted. So as people vote today, walking into our school and they vote for Ted Cruz, right. they're not voting for Ted Cruz, they're voting for Ted Cruz's delegates. Right, who will then vote for Ted Cruz at the convention. At the convention. Right. Uh, and so really this kind of flips the script and it makes the average person rather than the party the one who the politician has to play for, right? Which dramatically weakens the power of political parties. Um, you know, and so since 76, you've had a whole series of famous primaries going back. Uh, there's a couple, I think, that are, you know, are really kind of significant. You look at 1976 with the Republicans. Uh, Ronald Reagan runs against Gerald Ford, a sitting president, uh, runs as the conservative candidate. This is when conservatism was uh, not really seen as a driving force in American politics. It was seen on the outs, mm -hmm. and he does very well and pushes Gerald Ford all the way to the end. And, you know, Gerald Ford ends up losing that election, and then Ronald Reagan becomes the heir apparent, and conservatism is reborn. Right. Um, 1980, the flip happens. Uh, Ted Kennedy runs against Jimmy Carter because he thinks he's too conservative. Mm -hmm. You know, very rarely do sitting presidents have primary challenges. And that weakens him so much that you get the uh, Ronald Reagan election of 1980, which brings in the Reagan presidency. Uh, and so those are two early primaries that are super important. Okay. So here, I'm going to ask a couple questions while you're in the history because it's great having two government teachers here. Um, so coming from the world history and psych background, these are always things I like to know and stuff I get from my students and questions I don't always field super well. So here's, here's two. Why Iowa? Why New Hampshire? <laughs> because Iowa and New Hampshire say so. <laughs> so, so Iowa and New Hampshire both have state laws that says they will be the first primary and the first caucus. And so what happens is whenever another state moves their election up, Iowa and New Hampshire automatically spring past them. Uh, a little known fact, I guess, is that all elections are state elections. States run elections, even for national office. Right. And so all elections are set up by state law. The states set up where the booths are, who votes, and there's some nuance to this, but really states do most of the work. And so Iowa and New Hampshire put that they're going to be first. The natural next question my other students ask is, well, what if another state makes it a state law that they have to be first? Exactly. Uh, and I think the answer to that is no one's ever tried to do it, so we don't know. Okay. <laughs> but they would essentially just keep – this has happened. Our presidential season has gotten longer. It didn't used to be a full year. It got longer because that's what states did. They moved their primaries up because when you're closer to first, you have more influence. And then as a result – 
New Hampshire and Iowa moved theirs up. And so now we have it where the first primaries yeah, you said that until around June in the summer months, where yeah. a lot of these primaries were taking place, which then leads into the convention, in which August. is held, held at the end of the summer. You yeah. know, and so, yeah, so now everything is pushed back, pushed back, pushed back, and yeah, it's, it's it's been a very interesting history for those two states. And you think about with these, you know, relatively new issues, you know, talking in less than half a century, and how this prolonged political season plus the focus of populist-directed voting as opposed to um, convention-directed voting. And what does that do? How does that affect the nature of the presidency? And I know this is something people have written a lot about, but it's definitely something important to think about. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because you can kind of argue that it just kind of basically reinforces what's already kind of there, which is a populist presidency. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at the 12th Amendment, which made it so that the president and vice president ran on one ticket, whereas before second place was vice president. Right, right. And so you'd have two opposite parties in those offices, and you'd have a tie, which is in the election of 1800, which leads to the, the 12th Amendment. The 12th Amendment actually kind of does that already. It nationalizes the presidential election and makes it so that the presidential election is already kind of populist by sure. its nature. And so this kind of just takes it and makes it a little bit more populist, you know, because now you are, right, directly being elected in the primary season by candidates. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, it's, you look back at the idea of Thomas Jefferson being the vice president um, for Adams, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there's, you know, it, it, you could see it's good or you could say it's bad, right? Because the, I guess the, the benefits of a convention system is that it's somebody who's been thoroughly vetted by party, and so they're attuned to the party's desires, Right, and they've they've had to, they've had to work their way up the system. They have to be seasoned pros, right? And that's the benefit of the convention system. The benefit of the primary system is it allows for more fresh blood. You can get people who you know didn't work their way up, right? The negative to that is, of course, you haven't had people who have worked their way up, right? Sure. And that cuts both ways. You're closer to the source of democracy for good and bad, right? And yeah. there's actually an interesting thing I read recently about leadership that suggested that the people, the presidents who are seasoned veterans and had to work their way up through the system, if you look at the rankings of presidents, tend to fit exactly in the middle. Oh, yeah. Whereas the people who didn't get thoroughly vetted for whatever reason it was, and they were new blood, are either our best presidents or our worst presidents. Right. And you look at like someone like Lincoln, Lincoln being right. an example of the exactly best president. Think of. Sure. Uh, it was really interesting to read that, and it kind of it makes some intuitive sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so let's see. How do we move on? So our next one, um, I mean, I'll throw this one out there. So we've got a couple like you know agenda questions on here, and the first was to get through our history, which I think think we did a nice job of. So I'll, I'll propose this one to our government teachers here. So why don't Republicans rally around one alternative to Donald Trump? I think Donald Trump will probably be something we talk a lot about here. It's I mean one you know in the understanding the. So you kind of have two lenses as a historian, right, and a follower of politics. And it might be different for government teachers, too. But you always kind of have one eye on the present and then one eye speculating how this is going to go down um, in the history books, as what we typically say, but, you know, how how it's going to be remembered and what the long-term effects are going to be. So looking at this kind of from both lenses, right, why don't the Republicans rally around one alternative to Donald Trump? Yeah, this is kind of interesting, right? So... There's a lot of different things here that are involved here, right? You know, why does the, the party who doesn't like Trump get all the candidates but one to, to, 
to leave the race and rally behind that one candidate. You know, Rubio would probably be the right. most likely candidate. Because we're asking this with the assumption that the Republican, at least elite, Trump wouldn't be their first choice, right. to say the least. Right. Right. Which is, it's yeah. on the record. On the record. It's on, that's on the record. Yep. You, can, you can see that in, in the papers and on TV every day. Right. The, another kind of question here that's interesting is, you know, uh, Republicans were said to have a deep bench at the beginning of this primary. And what that means is there's a lot of politicians who have gone through a governorship or a Senate term and have experience winning elections. And, and so there's all these candidates that Republicans can choose from that, are, that can win, right? Whereas Democrats are said to have a weak bench this time. You know, there's Hillary Clinton and then who else, right? right. Uh, and there was widely seen to be no one else. And I think the real interesting thing here is I'm a big proponent of long primaries. I think they're good for America because I think what they do is they show you, they allow all the issues to be sussed out, and they let you see all the strengths and weaknesses of the various candidates. And they also kind of give you a, a state of the union on the two parties. Sure. You know, how, how stable, how strong, how unified they are, right? And I think what we're really seeing in this primary election is that the Republicans aren't unified at all. It's, it, the, state, the state of their union is, is not good, mm-hmm. right, in terms of party unity and, and rallying around a set of issues. And the primary is really showing us that you've got these gr- groups within the party that, you know, maybe 10 years ago were unified but no longer are, you know, because of current events or the Obama presidency or whatever. But I think it's also interesting, and me and the chairman were talking about this, right, the deep bench, what happened to it? Come to find out, it wasn't so deep. A lot of these candidates dropped out because they, they failed. Jim right. Bush, Scott Walker, Bobby Jindal, uh, you know, we could see Ted Cruz drop out after today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, well, why, if they have this deep bench, why aren't they able to solidify? And we got to this, you know, this idea of they're really going at each other. Right. They're really not unifying. And what does that say about the state of their party and their strengths and weaknesses? You know, I'll flip that, too. Is there... Is that necessarily a negative? So having a party... Oh, here, we'll edit. So I'll sort of flip that and ask, you know, is there a way that that could be interpreted as good? Is having this party that seems to represent a lot of different issues, is it better to be unified at this point, or is it good to have enough people and enough viewpoints where it's kind of a party of many ideas? Yeah, I don't... I think that depends, right? I think sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. I think, you know, you take an example of, like, 08 with the Democrats, and you had three candidates who had a legit chance at winning that thing. Right. And they went all 50 states for the primaries, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards. Yeah. And I would argue that that was extremely good for the Democratic Party. It helped them. It helped Obama as a candidate. The party ended up unifying at the end of the whole process. You know, Hillary Clinton ends up being his secretary of state. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill Clinton ends up being a big supporter of that administration. Uh, and I think it ended up being good for them there. It'll be interesting to see if the Republicans p- can piece this all together because uh, you do wonder to the extent they, uh, the, the amount of bickering and name-calling and stuff that's going around, whether or not they can unify. You know, uh, 76 would be a good example of the Republicans having a debate where it ended up being strong in the end, right? Sure. Because Reagan fights Ford. You know, Ford ekes out a win. Now Ford loses in the short term, but then the entire 1980s, the Republican Party is strong because of that fight. Right. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't, I can't quite see it for the Republicans right now. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, there's just been so much. It's going to be, there's a lot that's been said, especially recently in the past month, two months, that's going to be difficult to take back um, and to bring in. But, but yeah, I think there needs to be an asterisk next to Donald Trump 
as part of this process because what happened, and that's what we talked about earlier, is that's what's happening with the Republican Party. And a lot of the articles in the paper, they are unifying against Trump as far as the leadership goes. Well, but who are they rallying around? You know, there's there's no there's no solidified candidate that they're rallying around to then oppose him. And so therefore, now your whole party is split right. because the people are saying one thing, the leadership is saying another thing. So, you know, the party leadership and, is and the candidates thing. are saying a third and, thing. And, yeah, yeah, the candidates, yeah, yeah. And the candidates are saying a third thing, and, and they're going after each other. Whereas I think in '08 with the Democrats, they didn't they didn't make it as personal, right? They didn't attack each other as personally, which is why again, yeah. Hillary Clinton becomes the Secretary of State under Barack Obama because even though politically they sh they were opponents for that primary period, they still were fighting on the same side for the same things, you know, sure. and so that ended up working itself out. I don't see that happening with the with the Republican Party right now, and that's what's different. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, because Donald Trump is expected to be the winner, I think, now yeah. I think we can say that. It'll be interesting to see to what extent he gets endorsements and active support from the, Re the Republican Party. After all this. After all yeah. this, yeah. you know, because that'll, that'll solve some of these questions that we're discussing right now. Well, so let's go into the third, and then I'll, I'll, I'll keep just throwing these out. So our third point is we, we've got this huge push for outsiders right now, and maybe maybe more than, than we've heard at least certainly in the last in the last decade for people outside of the system, and that the system is broken. And we see this both on the left and on the right, on the right in the form of Donald Trump, and on the left on the form of Bernie Sanders. So our two co-sponsors. Our two co-sponsors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Feeling the burn, colon, making, making America great again. Yeah. So is the system broken? And uh, do Bernie and, and Donald Trump have a point? I don't think the system is broken. Call me an optimist. I, I, I think we do this every four to eight years where, you know, I mean, we, we forget about Obama and change and hope and bringing everyone together. You know, Reagan, it's always, it's morning in America. Right. And I think fundamentally the, the system is not broken because most people in the end, don't ever push for the changes necessary to fix, you know, quote unquote, the broken system. Sure. Right. So we talk, you know, Bernie Sanders' big thing is money and politics, right? Now, I'm not making a, a, a statement whether I think money and politics are broken, but I think that while people complain about it, in the end, they don't do enough to rally to change it. Sure. Right. Which is, suggests that the system's not broken, but that a substantial minority of a primary think it's broken. Right. Which is different from a general election where we have both parties voting, right? And so, you know, same thing with Donald Trump. We have a substantial minority of Republicans in a primary saying the system is broken. But does that then translate to a general election where the great mass of Americans are voting? Are they voting for a broken system? Right? Be because you're almost talking in an echo chamber when you're in the right. primaries. Right. Fact, right. You're talking to the most active of the two sides, the conservatives of the conservatives, the liberals of the liberals. Very few people in the middle vote in a primary season. So I think the primary season is always the, you know, it's always where the either the idealism or the cynicism comes out. And then, you know, we tend to retreat back into normalcy in the general election. And so I think that's just kind of like it's definitely it's a, a way to win elections. The you McCain know? presidency or the McCain run on presidency yeah. is what you know, kind of brings this definitely into my mind where here's this, you know, maverick moderate that went right, went right, went right, and then tried to get back to the middle and was going back to the middle and didn't get far enough. For the majority of the people. Um, so we look at that, you know, I, I always say, and this is a good place to throw it in, what I would have loved to see, you know, we, we've been talking about Donald Trump, but talking about Bernie Sanders, 
I've been really intrigued with him because I love seeing political kind of idealists in in modern politics. You know, we have yeah. so many people who are pragmatists. Right. Right. You know, you look at like Obama or a Romney who is who there are people who work and roll up their sleeves and work in government. Right. But I love seeing these people that come straight out of our government books, our political philosophy books, our political science books, and say, I really, I have this belief and this is what I would say. If I could schedule any debate, now listen, so all you listeners, Bernie, we know you're listening. <laughs> and if we could get Rand Paul, who yeah. really, for me, on the right kind right. of... Is also is, an idealist. Is an idealist, like, like really does a, the best job of one person in politics exemplifying the libertarian point of view and then have him talk with Bernie Sanders. I think this would be amazing. You know, people get a lot of emotions and they have a lot of strong feelings about this, but I would just intellectually love to see this. Sure. And see two guys that know their stuff in terms of their camp and, and see them talk about the issues today. I, we, well, we wouldn't totally get that with Trump and Bernie. No, because Trump is Trump is not an idealist. No, no. You know, Trump is, Trump is a, as we'll talk about in a minute, he's a demagogue. Yep. Um, but... Yeah, Bernie's interesting because he's one of those guys who, he's not going to win. You know, he's not. But it's these movements that open breathing space. You know, you can almost kind of, in a way, compare him to Barry Goldwater. Yeah. You know, Barry Goldwater got trounced in the 1964 presidential election running against Lyndon Johnson. And he's the first modern conservative politician to run for office. And he loses. And for the next 16 years... Everyone says conservatism is dead. Mm -hmm. Conservatism is this brief moment. They get trounced. We need to be moderates. But in the long run, he, his ideas end up seeping into, you know, Ronald Reagan presidency, Newt Gingrich in the mm -hmm. House in the 90s, you know, even a little bit the George W. Bush administration. And so, you know, ideas like that have a long-term appeal and an impact. Would you look at Nader as an example of that? As an unsuccessful know? version. As an unsuccessful, As an right? unsuccessful version the of Green that. Party, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a good way to look at it. Okay, so our next bullet point is so you know and we're saying the system maybe not broken i think you and i maybe be we might be a bad litmus test for these because <laughs> we do tend to be optimist and we do love yeah. the american government system and yeah yeah um i i, I think you know we should never want to achieve 100 percent of something because that means politics has stopped working right i i like <laughs> i i think i think discord is good um in a lot of ways especially in a country this big with this many needs but we have um so potential fixes what do we just abandon it? I. What other forms of government could we go with? I think there's a couple things we could do that would make the system work better without changing much substantially. Two things that I would fix is I would get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. Um, you know, I understand the uh, the ability of the minority to slow down legislation in the Senate is. I get it. When you're on the opposite side, you want that power. Sure. But I think it it causes a huge amount of cynicism in public. It, it, it fundamentally stops the legislative branch. Can and you I, give a 30-second explanation of filibuster? Yeah, the filibuster makes it so that you need to have a three, you need to have 60 votes to get anything passed in the Senate, which is a supermajority. Uh, and that's the, like, really, that's not what a filibuster is, but that's the quick version. Right. It, it makes it so that for every single vote, you need 60 votes, essentially. And uh, I, think, I think a legislative branch that doesn't work facilitates an executive branch taking more power. Sure. And so I'm looking at this kind of constitutionally speaking. If you don't want a strong executive, you need to have a legislative branch that works. And 60 votes it can't because one party never has 60 votes. So um, remove barriers to the, the gears right, of the legislation right. running. And then the second thing I would do is I would get rid of single-member districts in Congress because no matter what you do, they can be gerrymandered, which means the lines can be drawn to benefit one party or another. 
and I would go to at-large voting. So if Virginia votes 55% Republican, 45% Democrat in the House of Representatives, Republicans get 55% of Virginia seats, Democrats get 45%. It would make for more... Uh, it would make it for it would make it for a better we the people. It would right. be more representative of people's views, and I think that would get rid of a lot of cynicism, you know, because the liberal in our district in Glen Allen or the conservative in Richmond City feels disenfranchised, right? You know, and, and they're not necessarily, but they feel that way because they're never going to get a representative that suits their views. Right. And I think something like that, that kind of system could facilitate more involvement in government. Yeah, I think that that's I think that's good. You know, the only other choice we have is just to abandon democracy altogether. We could go to the junta. We, could go we to have junta. our military uniforms in the closet. We could we could go to a junta. We could have a military led. Um, and this is always important when you start getting, you know, um, disenchanted with government. You remember the Winston Churchill quote about <laughs> democracy being the least bad, the least bad form of government here. We'll get it. We'll get it exactly. It said, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Um, you know, we could always go to we could go to the educated oligarchy. The educated oligarchy sounds like a good one. Yeah. As long as we're in it. I mean, well, clearly, 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 clearly. Um, yeah. So edu- <laughs> we could go educated oligarchy. Um, we've never had uh, a government run by teachers. Oh, I dark times. That's the scholarchy. That scholarchy. That would be it. So the scholarchy. <laughs> um, that's going to be what I propose. Okay. So finally, let's throw in this question. We talked about Donald Trump. Where does he fit in historically? You know, how are we going to yeah. remember him? What's What's he going to be? He's making waves, and every time you kind of think that it's going to be the end of the run, it's not. I mean, he's here. Right. Uh, where's Where's he going to fit? Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? You could see a world in which he fails in the general and he becomes like a footnote like Ross Perot yeah where he's the guy that we remember as the failed populist attempt you know like a Pat Buchanan type figure and these these figures pop up especially on the right periodically you know everyone forgets Pat Patrick Buchanan but he gave George H.W. Bush a run for his money yep, yep, in 92 exactly arguably arguably helped facilitate his loss just as much as Perot Perot is a right wing populist in right. 92 and he ran his gun in 96 uh, you know there's there's kind of elements of Andrew Jackson about mm-hmm. Donald Trump. A little bit, sort of, not all the way, but yeah. there's elements of that there. Uh, but he is kind of sui generis, man. He is, in a way, he is a brand new figure. Yeah, it, it really, um, you know, you look at, um, I, I love the term demagogue. And in, I, sometimes it's used a little too negatively because it's not always, but the demagogue comes from the Greek word demos, which means people, and agogi, which means... Um, like leadership, leader, yeah. so the, the, the leader of the people. But it basically means somebody that takes the ideas of the people and... Reinforces them. Reinforces them, yeah. You could use the yeah. word pander or yeah. you can use the word reinforce. Uh, Huey Long uh, and McCarthy, Buchanan are probably like the one, two, and three of this. Yeah. The Economist just wrote an article on where Donald Trump fits in um, as a demagogue, and so did The Atlantic. The Atlantic a little bit more directly and The Economist a little bit more roundabout. I just saw them this morning. Uh, but it's a pretty cool thing. The demagogues have actually been around since the ancient Greek democracies where Aristotle's talking about Cleon, um, who was one of these people that, so, okay, the Athenians have this ability to vote now, and where it's an amazing thing and people have freedom, sometimes the most undemocratic uh, people can rise out of a democracy because of the beliefs of the populace. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if we could do a really fascinating whole segment on the late 1700s, early 1800s kind of 
uh, liberal enlightenment view of voting. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the, all all the founding fathers, really, almost all of them, and most European figures until the late 1800s believed that only property holders should be able to vote. And the idea was is that you know people who were uneducated in these jobs where they didn't have free time wouldn't have the ability to be detached, to step back, and to think objectively about the common good. Right. There was a reason why it was land-owning white men having the ability to vote. Like There was a rationale behind it other than just the elites holding power, which was definitely part of it. And uh, one of the best books that you could ever read on the American Revolution by Gordon Wood talks about how the logic of the American— Gordon Wood. Talks about how the logic of the American Revolution was to get rid of that idea. Because it was the idea that, you know, socially, social equality and the idea that, well, wait a second, landowning elites have interests too. Exactly. And they're, they're voting in their interests, so why can't the mechanics vote in their interests and the poor farmers vote in their interests? Right, because once you and, get to, you know, industrial 1800s, yeah. the last thing anybody's going to want is for only the landowning elites to have the voting right. rights. But Europeans, you know, until the 1860s, 70s, yeah. and even into 1900s— even in. For Britain, we're saying, wait a second, if we give people who don't own property the right to vote, they're going to listen to these demagogues and we're going to have redistribution of property and socialism. And, you know, that is less of an American issue. Yeah, and they saw it. You know, the French Revolution, one of the first European experiments with democracy is where you see this, like, whoa, when the people have power, people like Marat can take power and um, just start spitting venom and move the people one way or the other into frenzy. Well, and that to kind of bring it full circle and to end, raises the interesting question of to what extent does getting rid of gatekeepers like political parties cause problems? Yeah. Right? To go back to the beginning, political parties filter out the bad is the argument, and that's why you want them picking nominees, not the people who are loosely attached to political parties, if at all. Yeah. So cool things to think about, um, and we encourage you guys, make sure that if you are able to go out and vote, go out, vote in the primaries. Vote. We're going to get this too late. But, We're going to get this yeah. too late, but you'll get it. Um, so thank you guys so much, and this was great. I love talking government with uh, the two of you guys, especially who teach this every day. Um, and lots of resources online. If you want to learn more, there's no excuse to be an uneducated voter, uh, especially in today's world. It yeah. is easier to get information on what's going on. Um, spend a little bit of time. It's never been easier. Imagine how difficult it was catching up yeah. on issues in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, but now you sit down with your computer in the morning and in a couple hours yep. can be at least decently caught up. Yep. All right. Now it's time to move on to one of our favorite segments. <laughs> so during the Inquisition, Skylar and I will respond to questions generated by our listeners and our students. Remember that you can submit questions to us anytime through Facebook, Twitter, and our blog. And with that, Chairman, fire away. All right, guys, we're going to switch gears just a little bit for the first couple of questions. Uh, the Oscars were Sunday night. Yeah, they were. So our first couple of questions have a little Oscar twist to it. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio finally won a uh, Best Actor Oscar for his role in The Revenant. But what was his best role ever? Uh, you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> There's only one answer, and you already <laughs> took it. So I'm taking it. Amsterdam Valen. Didn't even need to look up the last name on this one. 
There are some people out there that, for whatever reason, Cameron Diaz don't like the movie Gangs of New York. Look you, Skybox. It was Skybox. Um, <laughs> but Gangs of New York, I just I, I cannot get enough of this movie. I was walking. I was in New York City the other day and walked past in the uh, downtown where Five Points were. Nice. And just took it in. I, I love the book that inspired this. I love Scorsese's take on it, and I love DiCaprio's character. Um, <laughs> Amsterdam Bowen, whose dad is an Irish Catholic priest who somehow also fights in gang warfare. Uh, of course uh, he does. Against Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> who is a butcher slash gang leader slash warrior. Slash political machine. <laughs> slash political machine backer. And it's just, I, I love this movie. I love I love the mix of what I, I think what attracts me to this movie is the mix of like mythology and folklore with American history. And it's just yeah. like it's both like tribal and ancient yeah. and then semi modern at the same time. And I don't mean to get all heady. Oh, well, I, was, I, was about, I was about to say I could get all artsy and philosophical. I love the last scene. It's so when they're great. all fighting and it just projects up and you see the Civil War starting. Yes. And you're just like the smallness of their fight versus the bigness of the fight to come. Yes. It's like drop the mic, Scorsese. Drop the, and the beginning, the beginning with the Irish oh, immigrants. Liam Neeson. Out. Liam Neeson. As a priest who's fighting with his scepter, it's just so... And, and, and DiCaprio kills this for me. And it was really... This was his first Scorsese movie. Um, and I think... And now the, that's all he does. Yeah, and that's now... That's, and if you could... <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, so the, I'm, I'm going to put that one, even though I love some Wolf of Wall Street as well. Oh, uh, See, I went and looked back at his movies and didn't realize he had made so few and didn't realize that I had disliked so many of them, including <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. I think that is like the worst movie ever. Um, so I, I went back to the beginning. I went to What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which is Young Leo. And that movie is just... Young Leo, Young Johnny. Is uh, Johnny Depp probably makes... No, Leo probably makes that movie. Le- Leo was the one who got the... Um, yeah. He came out of that with the nominations, I think. Yeah, and, right. and and that's you, if you haven't seen it because that's one of those movies that flies under the radar. That's a classic movie. Yeah, especially to our students who listen, you should check that out. In ni- uh, like early '90s, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, um, great movie. And I think his second movie, he was in. The, yeah, it's not the Boy his Scout first, movie, it's, right? It's, with it's not one of his first. It's but it's it's the beginning of Leo being Leo. I think. Um, but yeah, all right. Next question. All right, guys. Keeping with the Oscar tone, if you could remake any Oscar-winning movie, meaning they won, it won Best Picture, so any Best Picture-winning movie, what would it be and what would you do differently? All right, so I immediately go politics on remakes of movies because I, I love political movies as a political junkie. And I, old political movies just lose their value, right? They need right. to be updated. Like, yeah. Uh, so I went with All the King's Men, which is, I think, from the 40s. Yeah, I think it is 1940. Um, and it's a fictional account based on a book by a famous author whose name I'm not going to uh, Robert Penn Warren. Uh, it's a fictional account of Huey Long, speaking of one of the OG demagogues yeah. in American history from Louisiana, governor and senator from Louisiana. His son then went on to be one of the longest-serving senators ever. Uh and he was a demagogue. He had the Share Our Wealth program in Louisiana. 49, sorry. Uh, and all the king's men, uh, um, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, all these political movies. I think they could be updated to our times and be really good uh, satires, critiques uh, that would be relevant to this day. So what if I told you 
that as I have my computer out right now, it was remade. Really? In 2006. Really? Featuring Sean Penn, Jude Law, uh, and Kate Winslet. Check. I have actually seen that. <laughs> and, uh, now that I you say not, it. And I was not even aware and that this came I out. I think it was pretty bad, if I remember so correctly. So does IMDb, which is probably... Man, oh, Tragic. Hey, that just Ruffalo blew up my spot. That just blew up my spot. Yeah, I think Daniel Mark Ruffalo Fee. was a uh, journalist. Oh, oh. Man, they tried. Man, I'm sorry I didn't tell you this before pre-show. Man, it's blew up everything. I just, but uh, I'll remake it again because so the Sean Penn was awful as Huey. I Long. think we need another remake. <laughs> um, yeah, we need the re-remake. Not because, a Sean Penn fan in general. I don't. I, he's not very good. Except for in Fast Times. Well, we respect. Right, respect. Um, all right, so I, I was good. So here's one. I was about to say Spartacus. And then I had to look back, and I didn't realize not only did Spartacus not win an Oscar, one Golden Globe for Best Drama, um, it wasn't even nominated. Oh, interesting. Yeah, not even nominated. And I was going to say, because I, I've, I've been thinking for a long time that needs to be remade. Um, you know, the movie's awesome, and it's, it's a classic, but Spartacus, the actual historical story, is, I think, infinitely cooler. Yeah. And they did the, um, into the show. That star show, but that but was that like was, 300, well, you know, meets was, HBO yeah, Rome. Yeah, that was no good. Um, the, the story of a slave in the Roman Empire having successful slave revolts. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Really, some of the first, exa- like, not only the first, but some of the only examples of successful slave revolts, at least for a short time, until like the Haitian Revolution. Yeah. Um, uh, this is a story I think that needs to be told in the same vein as when HBO did Rome. Yeah. Um, which for any historical fiction, you know, junkie, they're going to love this because yeah. th- that was done. I mean, they, they had Roman historians on set to make sure things were authentic. Uh, but it's still a great story. Here's one. And tell me what you think this remake would be like. <laughs> I think we need to remake Gone with the Wind. Oh, man. It'd be interesting in our current times. It would be so to interesting. see how they did it. And you know, even a Gone with the Wind remake now would be more controversial than a Gone with the Wind remake five years ago. Oh, most certainly. You know, because this whole how we remember the Civil War. I, honestly, I thought five years ago as a history teacher, I thought it was just kind of fading away. And I was yeah. like, it's just not something people talk about anymore. It's back with a vengeance. Slavery is an issue. Slavery is a historical topic. Is back with a vengeance. Yes, and yeah. what. How would you remake Gone with the Wind? I, I, especially, well, I think it's, it'd be super interesting, especially in light of 12 Years a Slave. Yes. Which is one of the most stunning movies I've ever seen in my life. I mean, that you, you got to watch that movie to, to properly understand slavery if you don't read about it. I totally agree. And, you know, I would argue that you have to watch to understand the South post-1950 and how they envisioned themselves. Oh, yeah. Like white Southerners. So if you went like a... Like a Gone with the Wind is like a meta story about Southern perspective. About how they remember themselves. Yeah. You know, in the Lost Cause myth, because one of the yeah. coolest one of the coolest conversations you can have about historiography, which is the history of how we remember history, would be to talk about the Southern Lost Cause myth. Well, you know what would be interesting on that note is to make a movie about the making of Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah. That would be super intriguing. Well, I think, there you go. That'd be like the, the Disney Mary Poppins re- the movie that they made where they did the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, how, yeah, yeah. And then the Peter Pan one. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so Spielberg. Mr. Banks. You're welcome, Mr. Something, Banks. Something Mr. Yeah, Banks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there we go. Saving Mr. Banks. Saving, Saving Mr. Mr. Banks. Banks. Yeah. yeah. So Was it because he was an alcoholic? Why was he saved? I don't know. I didn't see it. I didn't either. Yes, he was an alcoholic right. who had basically he died of liver. Oh man, the guy that wrote Mary Poppins? No, no. His, his her mom, or his, da- his daughter. The writer, oh. the writer's yeah. dad. His daughter. Well, there you go. Man, Didn't have off to watch topic. It. Well, that's okay. Yeah, we're gonna do Gone with the Wind remake. Um, 
And man, yeah. What like what's what's it, what's Rhett Butler like in 2016? Well, he can't be a hero. No, like, he, but he is. But like, I mean, who's playing him? Who's, who's playing who, Rhett Butler? Who's playing Rhett Butler? Michael Fassbender. No. <laughs> 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 oh man, I mean, I'm just telling, growing up in growing up in Richmond, Virginia. Like, that's there's you were just shown that movie. Yeah, like, you yeah. were shown Gone with the Wind. Like, that was something I had to sit down and watch with my mom and grandmother. Uh, Michael Fassbender in Twelve Years a Slave. He's incredible. To me, I don't like. That is the one role where I watched it and thought, how does a man make himself that character and be stay human? And then, like, the next year, go be Magneto? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how do you do that? And, and the same guy from um, Band of Brothers? Yeah, how do you yeah, do all no, that? I don't know. I don't, and he's not American? Maybe it's because you're not American. Oh, uh, it could be. Yeah, he doesn't that know that baggage. Yeah. That's my that's my point. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's stick with that theory. All right. <laughs> all right. Uh, next question, just kind of a throw-in question, but all of us... Uh, and probably a lot of our listeners too are are fully engaged with Netflix. House of Cards coming out yeah, this week. Yeah, so you know, original series, but even you know, throwback series and going back and watching, you know, binge watching. Obviously, it's kind of yeah. the new thing and how to watch TV. Is Netflix the next major television station, though? Is it going to replace some of these big networks that we've always been accustomed to? Those of yeah. us who have obviously you know, children of the '80s and '90s uh, are accustomed to four major networks. Producing all of this new content right. is Netflix that next? Is it going to yeah. take over? I think it already has. I mean, I, 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 I would I would tweak that and say just online providers because Amazon is doing some amazing stuff mm-hmm. too. Yeah, like so uh, you would put Netflix, Hulu, and even Hulu's doing new stuff too. Yeah, yeah. even YouTube yeah. starting to go that way. You know, I mean, I just watched Love, the new series on Netflix, and it's ten episodes. We watched it in like four nights over the space of two weeks. You know, and then I'll forget it existed, and then maybe. I'll watch season two in a year. Right. That's the problem with it. it. But, I mean, I don't watch regular TV. It's. I think the landscape of TV and how we consume, you know, that type of entertainment is totally changing. I totally agree with that. I don't see the network television stations going anywhere. I think, in You're a way, we're kind of in a bubble because we're people who, like, really like – we like cutting-edge pop culture. Yeah. And that lives on Netflix. Well, I'll tell you where cable TV loses among the parent crowd because – if I want to watch a television show, I want to watch it now. Yeah. And I only want to watch it for 30 minutes. Right. And I don't want to have to deal with all the nonsense because I don't want to sit down in front of a TV for three hours at the end of a day. Sure. And so if I want to watch television, I want to watch Love, and I've got, I know I got five hours of television, and I know I can splice it out over X amount of days, I'm never going to go back to regular TV because there's no need because if I want to watch basketball, I can go online. Oh, yeah. You know? And so. It's people like me that are going to cost them viewers, but you're probably right. Probably not. You know, you just think about how many people, like CBS, just the the shows that they put out and like that routine, you know, and you look at those numbers that just, there's a lot of people who watch Big Bang Theory on network TV. You're right. And when you compare that to HBO shows, they get all this, yeah, they get all this critical acclaim and I really like them, but I don't know. I don't know. There's definitely changing landscape and it's. It's cool. Like I like being live in this time. No, I think you're right. I mean, you you have that like mass audience, which we are definitely not. Mm-hmm. And you put that that's gonna that's gonna stay the same. The interesting thing will be to what extent does their bottom line get hurt by people like us leaving? Yeah, yeah. You know, because I, you know, take an example, just pure money, right? West Wing was a television show that got relatively few viewers compared to a show like Big Bang. It stayed on air for seven seasons though, because the demographic that watched it made a lot of money. Yeah. And so advertisers paid more money for ads sure. for that show. So if you see people like that leave the 
see, and I don't make a lot of money, but you see, if you see people like that leave the CBS 7 to 10 hour, well, what impact does that have on television? Yeah, and what role does advertising play? And what role does run? advertising play in the long run? Or something like Netflix, if you're paying money, and they make their money through subscriptions instead of advertising. Right. Who knows? Man, West Wing, I mean, how much better? I didn't watch West Wing on network, so I binge-watched. I, I watched West Wing on Netflix. Because I didn't watch yeah. it when it was actually coming out, it was great. I can't imagine having to wait. Oh, it was all season season seven, man. That was, our, that was our that was our like routine show. It was the only routine show I think I've ever had yeah. as an adult. It would have been. All right, so oh, <laughs> oh another one. Good one, students. Watch West Wing. Classic. Great thing to do. Absolutely. You can Classic. learn a lot about American government. Speaking of politics, uh, return to politics in regards to uh, the recent death of Anton Scalia. Uh, who's right? Are the Democrats right uh, to say that it's the president's job to pick an appointee and the Republicans who are refusing to hold hearings on that appointment? Like, which side Which side is correct in, in this political debate right now? Well, I would argue nobody. I think everyone's right. It's politics, baby. And it's going to be whoever has the sheer willpower to get this done or not. And then the election decides. But they're both playing with fire because there is an election so close. And so, I mean, I just think it's whoever has the sheer willpower because there's no actual constitutional issue here. The president picks, the Senate approves. Yeah. There's no time stamp on that. You know, the, the Senate has the right to not approve. If I were the Republicans, I might handle it differently. I'd hold hearings and then just keep voting people down mm-hmm. to make it look like Instead I was doing something. Instead of just digging in. Instead of just digging in. Yeah, that's where I would say I feel like... But that's politics. That's not the Constitution. No, I agree. I, th- that would be my only, my only dig would say... I think it's smarter. I think it's I, I think it's smarter to not make a huge issue out of it overtly, right. and kind of just handle it through the slow grinding gears of yeah. what the legislative branch can right. do. Well, then you can because then you can say, oh, he picked someone who's too liberal. Exactly. Oh, you can put the blame on Obama. You just keep throwing it back in. Whereas he can throw it on them now. Because right now it gives whoever's going to run for president. and You've said this many times. Whoever runs for president can have on the Democratic side can point fingers at the Republicans and say, look, they don't do anything. Yeah. It just feeds into the narrative. Yep. Right. And which that's what Trump's done really well with his uh, digs at other candidates, right? He makes a joke that hits their weakness. Yeah. Jeb Bush, low low energy. Oh. <laughs> Marco Rubio, yeah, maybe not all there. Right. Ted Cruz, nobody likes him. Yeah. You know, all his jokes hit their weaknesses. Yep. Yep. And this this will definitely play in. Yeah. All right. All right. Final question for the Inquisition today: What historical figure? could win this year's presidential debate. Man, I have one that I just, this is one of my favorite historical figures. Uh, we talked, I've mentioned French Revolution earlier. Georges Danton, um, the leader of the mountain, kind of the middle left faction in the French Revolution was this huge, bombastic, he's, he's like almost like a Chris Christie yeah, kind, kind of. of, but he's he's the fighter. More of, a man of the people. More, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could maybe take like a Christie and a Trump, but a moderate. Well, I guess a moderate for well, the French Revolution, so yeah. middle left. Yeah. Um, but and then, but then kind of got painted as being right because the French maybe Revolution. almost like a Patrick Henry type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Danton, but Danton was you know big drinker. Yeah. He was the one that would. I mean, he would go up against like Robespierre, who's kind of wormy and little, and Danton was this big, loud. Uh, political leader, and I would have loved, and uh, brilliant in terms of rhetoric and debate, and I would love to see him in a presidential debate. Not an American figure, but that would be interesting. George's Dan Tom, look him up if you want to learn more. <laughs> well, Abe Lincoln's the easy yeah. answer, uh, just because of his, I mean, we know he did debates and success fairly successfully against Stephen Douglas. Uh, 
you know, I got two figures. One is Benjamin Disraeli. Your boy. The, the best. The best. You never heard of him on this podcast. Yeah. The, the best <laughs> member of parliament in 1800s England. And the scourge of William Gladstone. Yeah, I was just going to say, come on. You're just throwing William Gladstone under the bus. Uh, and from American perspective, I got to go with the only ESL president in our history. First language, Dutch. Martin Van Buren, the founder of the modern American political system. That's a great thing. You know, the kind of brains behind the Jackson machine, the quick-thinking strategist. I don't know if he was actually a good debater. It just seems like he would be a good one, you know, political guru. So I'm going to pick Martin Van Buren since Benjamin Disraeli is uh Man, you know, it would be really fun. Talk about the the Gladstone-Disraeli debates. <laughs> yeah. like how much fun that – I mean, they uh, – Brilliant. Hours. And absolutely hated each other. Hours like not, every night in parliament. Yeah, not even a joke. I th- people don't understand how in the 1800s, which was like the prime of the legislative branch in history, both American – that's when the American right. legislature was at its peak – that's when in Europe the legislatures were at their just peak. Just the sheer influence of the British Parliament on the world. And I mean, just it was pre bureaucracy, right? Yeah. So the executive branch had much less power. Yep. And I mean, the members of Parliament would debate for hours every night. They'd start at like two or three in the afternoon and go into like two or three in the morning and give like hours long responses to each other. I mean, you could, you know, you can look. Disraeli Gladstone. We should do a podcast on this because oh. you could track. You can track modern Middle East. Yeah. In. The, directly to them. The Irish problem. The Irish problem. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that would be a cool one. Um, I have not read or talked about them in far too long. Yeah. Um, they're classic. All right. But so Van Buren, Danton with Disraeli as the asterisk because all you have going, to mention him at least once. All going against uh, Donald Trump and Donald Hillary Trump, Clinton. Hillary Clinton. How did I really Yeah, you get Bernie in there. You get Bernie in there just yelling. Just, just. I love the if you get Saturday Night Live, just the great, just the great finger on the pulse. With it had a bunch of young liberals saying that they agree with everything that Hillary uh, says, but they like Bernie more. <laughs> they just, I like it when Bernie yells, but not when Hillary does. <laughs> so he would be more entertaining, but I think uh, I think Hillary would get more angry. <laughs> All right. Uh, Moving on. Now it's time for our new segment we are calling Moment of Cultural Literacy. The message is that there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. There are known unknowns. That is to say, there are things that we now know we don't know. But there are also unknown unknowns. There are things we do not know we don't know. And each year we discover a few more. This is just the greatest. Like every time we go into that segment, I get so pumped up. That is the best quote of all time, Chairman. You have to do something with that. Like this needs to become. We should just sell that. To we people. should sell that one. Be like here's 15 seconds. Yeah. Pay us $500 for every second. Um, all right. So as teachers of our students, sometimes we think um, they think we get particular joy out of assigning homework. Truth. Yeah, yeah, we do. But in any yeah. case, for this segment, we're going to give a challenge to our listeners to increase your cultural literacy. We often see that our students don't just benefit from content level reading and learning, but there's a lot about our culture we can learn from hobbies, interests, and habits. So for this section, each of us are going to assign one activity and that will help us um, all make a little bit more culturally literate. So Skylar, you go ahead and start. What is going to be your assignment? Talk politics. 
talk politics. We often, you know, hear people say you shouldn't talk politics with people. You know, it's this thing in society that we don't, for some reason, want to engage other people in, and it's become this like big no-no. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it's some of the most enlightening and educational conversations you'll have. I mean, with March 1st, you know, and the Super Tuesday, I've been having so many political conversations with all different types of friends, coworkers. And it really does help you figure things. You know, it helps you learn. It helps you figure things out. And it's, yeah. it, it doesn't have to be two people yelling at each other, you know. You can have conversations that you don't agree and still be fun. Yeah, ask about it. And, you know, if you can't... If you can't talk politics without getting fired up, take a step back and look at yeah. your own beliefs. Right. Like it's, we're in a democracy, and if you believe in this kind of society, you can't expect everybody to agree right. and everybody to just um, to fall in line with your own beliefs. And there, there's a lot of psychology in this. Like, you know, we, we are so prone to what's called confirmation bias, which is when we have an existing opinion, we look for stuff that only backs up that existing opinion. Um, and it's, this, is, this is a cognitive trait throughout human history, throughout the way we think, not just in politics, but in everything. And then we also tend to group ourselves with people who are like us. So don't be afraid to let these views challenge. And, you know, when you're talking politics, I think the other good thing is um, ask, ask questions. Don't just yeah. say what you believe. Feel free, like, ask people what they believe and, and why. Um, and if you do it respectfully, you can really grow. Yeah, and, and you can change minds. You know, yeah. you can. Like, if through conversational dialogue where you're not trying to force something on people, you know, and, and you can learn and grow. And so find those people. I think finding the people are really key, too, that will also yeah. not get angry at you yeah. if you express a candid opinion or you right. have a question, something that they might think is obvious and you don't yeah. understand it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when in doubt, you've got – feel free well, to talk, talk I, to teachers, and, and, talk and to I, parents. And I think the key to, to having a good conversation is to realize that, you know, the apocalypse is not going to happen if the other side wins. Right. Right. Like, we don't need to move to Canada if, you know, Trump or Hillary wins. They're both – you know, I mean, you might not like what they're going to do, but you can live to fight another day. Yes. We have more elections. And, and by the way, all of the people who get on and say, if this person wins, I'm moving, uh, go travel to another country. Uh, <laughs> because you're see some... Well, actually, don't even just travel. Like, yeah. actually go live there. Yeah, I like, dare you. I dare you yeah. to spend a month and live <laughs> under another yeah. form of government with other customs, with other traditions, and see how right. it stacks up. Right. And in general, in terms of political dysfunction, we are definitely on the low end. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So True. keep that in mind. All right, here, I'm going to put mine. I'm all about this. So you guys know, um, you know, we're all big readers here, and I'm in um, taking classes. So it's been really hard for me to read fiction um, because I've got a lot of required reading for class, and it's, it's really been bugging me the past few years. So I've been getting really into e-audiobooks. It started with fiction, um, and I did um, Audible. Uh, you guys ever done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. You know, through Amazon. So I pay 10 bucks a month and, and I get an audiobook, And that's good. But I know kind of the casual person might not want to do that because it's going to be $120 in a year. Right. And then I found, and this, you, some people are going to say this is obvious, but I swear I'm a teacher. I'm up at VCU all the time. And I still didn't think about this at all. My public library card um, in Richmond City and Henrico County. So one, Richmond City, Henrico County, Chesterfield County, the three counties near us, all have reciprocity. So if you right. have a Richmond Public Library card, you can go to any of these. I swear I didn't know this. This is very common in a lot of other localities too, where metro areas are starting to share resources, or right. maybe they've been doing it for a long time. But now, not only can you get eBooks from these people, and I'm a big reader of eBooks, is sometimes I like print, sometimes I like eBooks, but you can get e-audiobooks. 
So I just got the um, Wright Brothers biography by David McCullough, something kind of piece of pop history I've been wanting to read for a long time, but don't really want to sit down and read it. It takes me maybe 15 hours to listen to, which is not that much. You know, on morning commutes, I throw it in when I do laundry or when I have to do any sort of housework I don't feel like doing. Um, And then um, I got James McPherson, Battle Cry for Freedom, which is like the definitive Civil War kind of like textbook, but it's very narrative. So it's like listening to podcasts, which I've been doing for a long time. Uh, But e-audiobooks from the public library, and there are tons of resources. Also, if you have friends who live in different localities, all you need to access these books are a um, library code. Mm-hmm. So if they're nice enough to lend it to you, you can check stuff out in their name. And I've got now seven free e- audiobooks on my phone. Well, it's, it's also amazing, too, how if you just go to an actual library and just sit there, time slows down, and you can read, relax, get a lot of yeah. stuff accomplished. I mean, just going to the library to do schoolwork or to do whatever. And if you're not the reading type, and we talked about the Oscars earlier, you could actually, there's DVD collections there that have most of the best picture winners from the last 60 years. You could actually go and, and, you know, the filmography you learn from that and and the stuff that you could learn from. I mean, all of that is there for you, and all you have to do is sign up. Oh, and magazine apps. That's the last one. I just got the, um, it's not browsing, but it's, it's another app. And... I was. Uh, I got a bunch of cooking things. I got Bon Appetit recipe, National Geographic Traveler. They have like Men's Health. I mean, they've got everything in there. Um, and all you have to do is get the app on your tablet for your public library, and you can download these things at. Um, you, a lot of times, you can just stream them right on too, so you don't ever have to actually check them out. So ch- take a look at e resources in the public ri- library. I would say for the person who likes learning. Um, or the person who knows they should like learning, but they don't always have time, this is a good place to do it. Yeah. I'd say that was a pretty successful broadcast. All right. So there we go. Super Tuesday. Another successful podcast. Another successful podcast. We're not even going to reference the fact that it's been a while. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Nope. We're just going to roll on by that. We're going to roll right on by that. I I think, I think at this point it's, it's more supply and demand. I mean, you know, we're, 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 we want people to want this. We want people to, to, <laughs> oh, they want it. Yeah, to that's... go after and say, "Hey, you know, where's the next podcast coming?" And then, you know, we'll deliver. Well, I have I have binders full of emails. <laughs> <laughs> binders, full. <laughs> binders full of listeners. Binders full. Binders full of listeners. Binders Man. full of ideas. Binders full of ideas. That can be our next <laughs> our next podcast title. So we'll have some more coming at you. Uh, everybody get out there and vote from Drew Baker, Skylar Van Valkenburg, and the chairman, Matt McKegg. Have a great one. Thanks for listening. Take it easy.